Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, verses uh, 1 through 19, as we continue our study of the Gospel of Luke. God's Word is inspired by the Holy Spirit, is given to us as His perfect and inerrant and infallible Word. We approach it carefully and seek God's blessing uh, from it. Before we read God's Word, let us pray. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For your Son's sake. Amen. Luke 20, verses 1 through 19. One day, as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, We don't know where it was from. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, May this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of God endures forever. Amen. A story from a a novel that uh, I enjoyed quite a bit. There was a, a pastor who had served in a small rural town for just about one year. He was a decent man trying to do good by the people in his congregation, but really his sights were set on going back to school. Uh, He wanted to resume his studies, receive a doctorate, and perhaps teach uh, in the academic world. 
that academic life was really his deepest desire. Truthfully, if you were being honest, he could not wait to escape uh, this current pastoral post. The The town in which he served was cold and lonely. The pastor before him was deeply depressed, and so uh, the parsonage was, was drafty and dilapidated and almost beyond repair. The people of his congregation wanted to hear more about the atonement than the finer matters of textual criticism or uh, the latest scholarly works. So he's brought fairly close to a place of despair. And he does something that's very odd for him. He grabs his Bible one afternoon and a spiritual pamphlet. And the spiritual pamphlet has several uh, prompts, questions that are supposed to cause you to think and, and reflect on deeper matters. One of the questions that particularly grabs his attention is this. Am I willing to commit myself wholly to God? Am I willing to commit myself wholly to God? It is with this question that this pastor realizes that although he has been serving as a pastor in this rural town, he has not been a shepherd. He has not been a shepherd because he has not been living as one of the sheep himself of Jesus. He is drowning in pride and self-interest and in lust after earthly glory. So he has a spiritual awakening reflecting, pouring over the pages of Scripture, comes face to face with the living Christ and his gospel. And he goes on to say, God shall have the power and the glory, and for me now, service and obedience begin. There's this change. Ultimately, it came down to who had the power, the authority, the right to judge in his own life. So the the chapter ends by narrating these things. It says this, It struck him that up to this day, everything had been just the opposite. It was he himself who had power, who had the power to choose a suitable life philosophy for himself. He had defended Jesus and declared that he must be considered as an unequaled example for our day. But of course, one must pass by that in his teaching, which was determined by the historical situation and had significance only for Jesus' own day. But all the while, it was he that passed judgment and assumed the right to accept or reject. The validity of the Christian faith depended entirely on whether he found it worthy of acceptance. Brought face to face with the living Lord of glory by the word of God, he realizes that he's been living in the wrong way. And so he goes on to, we go on to read, His right to judge was shattered altogether. It was no longer he who passed judgment on religions. It was God who was passing judgment on him. And so as he goes to, back to his congregation and begins shepherding them, he has this newfound idea of faith, and there are some rough edges that need to be worked out with it. But he begins to live out this idea of total self-commitment. Total self-commitment. Now, total self-commitment is something that works out of saving faith. Saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, saving faith shatters pride. Saving faith destroys self-interest. It destroys our lust after earthly glory because it begins to apprehend. It begins to understand who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. He is the Lord Almighty. He is the Lord of glory, the God-man who is our Savior. We're confronted with all of that in this passage this morning. 
confronted with all of that as we see the unbelief of the leaders of Israel. The unbelief of the leaders of Israel. And over against these pictures of saving faith that we're considering, we see uh, the foolishness of the unbelief of the leaders of Israel. Unbelief is foolish, it is wicked, and it is also dangerous. So those are the three things we're going to unpack today. The foolishness of unbelief, the wickedness of unbelief, and the danger of unbelief. First, we consider together the foolishness of unbelief. Jesus is now in Jerusalem. And we're beginning to sense that things are moving towards the end of his life, that the tensions are rising. And in this passage, he is preaching the gospel. And something we have to know about that, we need to keep that in mind as he has this clash with the leaders of Israel. He's preaching the gospel. And there would have been certain aspects to the proclamation of Jesus that would have been veiled, right? Because he has not been crucified yet. He has not yet risen from the dead. But you can go to a place like Mark chapter 1 and get a good sense for what Jesus was preaching. He, of course, was preaching the same gospel. There's only one gospel from the beginning to the end of all of Scripture. We go to a place like Mark chapter 1. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There are a few elements to the proclamation of Jesus. He's preaching repentance. He's preaching trust. And he is preaching submission. Repent of your sins, trust in me for the forgiveness of sins, and give yourself to me in submission as you see the forgiveness that flows forth from who I am. You see all of these things even throughout the Gospel of Luke. Repentance and trust and submission as Jesus is preaching and proclaiming this message, uh, this Gospel. And he's doing it here in Jerusalem. So he's approached by these three groups these three groups of leadership in the life of Israel. And really, the three groups that approach him represent uh, all of the life of Israel. The priests represent the temple, the teachers of the law represent the word of God or the law, and the elders represent leadership of the people in all the matters of uh, the society, the organization of the nation of Israel. So it's interesting to know that Someone who would claim to be the Messiah has an interest in all three of these realms. The temple and the the Messiah's interest in that and bringing greater salvation. The law, the word of God and how it points to the Messiah. And then finally, the the people for the salvation and and this greater realization, greater revelation of how God's people are to live. This is an enormous clash in the life of Israel. It would kind of be like, you know, if, if the elders and the deacons and every member of every committee got together. Right? You have the, the, this massive conglomerate of authority in the life of Israel. And, and they come right up to Jesus and they ask him, where do you get this authority? Who gave this authority to you? What are they talking about? They're not talking just about the teaching of Jesus, not just talking about the proclamation of Jesus. They're also talking about the things that have just taken place, the triumphal entry. That was quite a statement by Jesus, to ride into Jerusalem on a colt, knowing that prophecies had been written about the Messiah and how he would do that. Jesus has also just cleansed the temple. He's cleared the temple. He has done so in the name of his Father. So there are these things going on that You see in both of those instances, chapter 19, verses 39 and 47, the leaders of Israel are trying to get to the bottom of what Jesus is doing. They're calling him out. They want to know exactly 
what he is claiming to be. So who gave you this authority, they say. They want to have Jesus come right out and say it. But Jesus is not going to be cornered, is he? I love it that one of the the cross references for this passage is Job chapter 5 verse 12, which says this, God frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. Something that's important to understand, it's not really the primary thrust of this passage, but need to understand and always keep in mind that Jesus is not going to go to the cross until the exact time that has been appointed for him to do so. And that reminds us that everything that Jesus did, he did voluntarily. He laid down his life for us. No one took it from him. So Jesus is not going to be cornered. He answers their question with another question. The theme of the questioner was a popular one back in antiquity, and we still feel the effects of that today, right? The the, the one who is asking the questions is controlling the conversation. The one who is asking the questions is determining the direction of uh, where the conversation is going to go. So we see that this, while there's this big challenge of the authority, there's also this battle within the battle of who is going to control this conversation. Jesus' question is really interesting because it places the leaders of Israel within the horns of a dilemma, doesn't it? There's really no better answer for them uh, to say. If they affirm John the Baptist, Jesus says, uh, the baptism of John, is it from heaven or is it from man? So basically he's saying, is it, does it have a divine origin or does it have a human origin? No matter what they say, it will yield an unhappy result. If they say, John the Baptist was from God, then Jesus will rebuke them. He will say, well, why didn't you believe his message? If they say that John and his ministry were not from heaven but from man, the people will rise up against them. They will stone them even because the people have already made the determination that John the Baptist and his ministry uh, were of God. The idea of bringing up John the Baptist and the things that he says and all of the claims that he said mandate that the leadership of Israel would take a stance on all of the things that he said. John the Baptist looked to Jesus and he made it very clear what he believed about Jesus, didn't he? John chapter 1, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. We go on to read in John 1, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples. He looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. What's interesting is you read in John chapter 1, right after John says this, two of John's disciples leave John the Baptist to go and follow Jesus, which is a natural reaction, right? If the one to whom you give allegiance say, that's the guy to follow, that's the one you need to pay attention to, that's the one to whom you should give your allegiance, then if you really heed the words of your leader, you would do that. We're in the last stages of the election season. This past week throughout the country, there was, I think, at least one, maybe a couple uh, of races where there were third-party candidates who were slated to receive, you know, somewhere between 3 and 5% of the vote. And late in the game, they realize sometimes they can't win, so they'll drop out, and sometimes they will give their endorsement to another candidate, which can have an enormous swing in an election, right? The 3 to 5% in the grand scheme isn't going to win you an election, but it can swing an election. Imagine you have an author that you really love and revere, 
and you're reading this author, and in one of the books it says, everything that I know and teach and say I got from someone else, I got from this author, you're probably going to be inclined to go and read what that person has to say as well. This is uh, what John did. He pointed to Christ. And because of all the claims that he made, it mandates a response, particularly from the leadership of Israel. So Jesus' question back to the leaders of Israel, the priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders, it forces them to deal with the claims of John the Baptist. He's the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God. Something else to keep in mind is that John the Baptist lived in accordance with his confession about Christ. What is it that John the Baptist said? He must increase, but I must decrease. You see, John the Baptist lived, living out the truth of what he believed. And so the question posed to the leaders is, is what John the Baptist said true? Is Jesus Christ really Lord? And as the leadership of Israel, as someone who claimed to be the Messiah, as someone who had a following, it falls upon the responsibility of all of these, the priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders, to give a response. And that's exactly what we see that they don't do. You see, something about the truth is that we don't have the convenience to avoid it. No one on earth has the convenience of avoiding the truth. The truth makes a claim on us. Very famous apologist, C.S. Lewis, he gave one of the most powerful, regarded by many people, one of the most powerful arguments for giving uh, your allegiance to Christ by trusting in him, by believing the gospel. He said, really, there's only three possibilities for what Jesus Christ is. He is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is Lord. He's a liar. He was a master at, at, at saying lies, spreading lies, getting people to believe in him. He's a lunatic. He really believed what he claimed, but it actually wasn't true. Or he is Lord. He actually is who he says he is. I've met a couple couple people who said that this very argument was instrumental in bringing them to Christ. So you have to decide where you stand with Jesus. The truth makes a claim upon you. You don't have the convenience of avoiding the truth. But that's exactly what the leaders of Israel do. We don't know, they say. They think this is cunning. They think this is the only way that they can go. This is not cunning, however. This is disqualifying. They're showing that they really don't have what it takes to lead Israel. That they really don't have what it takes to take the responsibility upon themselves themselves as uh, the leaders that God has made them to be. John chapter 5, we read this. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The truth makes a claim. We don't have the convenience of avoiding it. We don't have the convenience of avoiding it. We see here the foolishness of unbelief. They, the leaders of Israel think that they can avoid standing on the truth of conviction and letting the people know where they stand. We see here the foolishness of their unbelief. Secondly, we see the wickedness. This parable tells us why they avoid taking a stance on the ministry of John the Baptist. Why do they avoid taking a stance? They do so because they are blinded by 
self-interest, by pride, by an obsession with their reputation or their office. This parable is simple enough to understand, isn't it? The owner of the vineyard is the Lord. The tenants are the leaders of Israel, the ones that have come up to Jesus. The servants of the parable are the prophets whom God has sent through the ages to make an appeal to Israel, to call them to repentance. So the vineyard could be Israel, it could even be uh, the kingdom of God, but this idea of uh, Israel as a vineyard is something developed at great lengths in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 5 and Jeremiah chapter 2. And the, the, the image that we get is that Israel is given all of the resources to flourish as a vineyard. But as God comes back and sees them, he finds that they have become wild. They have run amok. They have not been cultivated in the proper way. And oftentimes, it is the leadership of Israel that is culpable for that. But the entire situation of this parable is informed by the wickedness of the tenants. They take that which is not rightfully theirs... They abuse uh, those who are sent by the authority of the owner. They do not give the fruit of the vineyard, which is due to the owner. And in verse 14, we find out why they do that. Verse 14 says this, When the tenants saw the son, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. See, they wanted to have it all for themselves. They wanted their position of power. They wanted their reputation. They did not want to give that up. And that's why they refused to answer on the question of John the Baptist. They're hiding behind a a feigned approval of John the Baptist. And they think that they can sort of just hide behind that. But to be confronted with the truth is a different matter entirely. It's interesting, isn't it, that they asked, who gave you this authority? That's what they asked Jesus. Really, they should have been asking themselves that question. Who gave them authority to have their position of leadership? It was God. God had given it to them. And rather than using it for him and attempting to serve him, they used it for themselves. Sad, certainly, that oftentimes leadership in the church today can operate the same way. That rather than seeing the position one has as coming from the Lord and using it to serve Him, use it for your own ends. Use it for your own gain. Exploiting what you have because of your earthbound mindset and mentality. But really, the, the, the application of this applies to all of us. Something that this parable teaches us is the urgency with which we must serve God with our lives. This is an urgent matter and something to which all of us are called. One life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. John the Baptist shows us the heart of a a true believer, doesn't he? He must increase, I must decrease. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. I am the clay, mold me and make me after thy will, while I am waiting, yielded and still. That's the heart of the true believer. We have this counterexample of the wickedness of the tenants who have been given this opportunity to serve the Lord. They use it for their own gain. They use it for their own ends. I'm reminded of a positive example in the play or the movie, A Man for All Seasons. 
The Man for All Seasons tells the story of Sir Thomas More, who lived late 15th, early 16th century in England. And he was standing against King Henry VIII, who was trying to basically use some of the events of the Reformation for his own uh, for his own gain, he saw an opportunity to, to sort of do what he wanted and to live into some of his worldly in, uh, indulgences. Sir Thomas More lives in, the, in that play, in that movie, with an impeccable sense of he is living his life before the face of God. All that he does, day and night, day in and day out, he lives before his God. He does not compromise on his integrity. Never, never once does he do something that he would be ashamed uh, for God to see. It's really an unbelievable telling of the integrity of a man. This world is often not a happy home for people who live so honestly. So when he is betrayed and when there's a coup against him and he's standing there at the end of his life about to have his life taken from him, he's given the opportunity to say something. He says there at the end of his life, I die the king's good servant, but God's first. I die the king's good servant, but God's first. Friends, brothers and sisters, we need to know and understand that as far as it depends on us, as we read in Romans chapter 12 this morning, as far as it depends on us, we have the responsibility to live peaceably with all. But we are God's servants first. We are God's servants first. And will we have the sense That all the things that we do in this life, we live before the face of our God. We serve Him. See the wickedness of the unbelief of the tenants, informed by worldly power, by lust for worldly gain or their reputation. Many things which may be blinding each one individually, but we see the wickedness of unbelief. How does one build A counter life, a life that's different than that. Well, it needs to be a life that is built from faith. It can't be built upon uh, the presumption of our own integrity. It can't be built upon the idea of trusting in our own works. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Certainly we are called to have total self Commitment, but that total self-commitment works itself out of saving faith. Listen to what Puritan Richard Sibbs says. He says, Let us know, therefore, that it is dangerous to look for that from ourselves which we must have from Christ. Since the fall, all our strength lies in him. Therefore, he says, dependent spirits are the wisest and the ablest. Nothing is stronger than humility, which goes out of itself. And nothing is weaker than pride, which rests on its own foundation. He strives in vain, who is not dependent. To be confronted with the Lord of glory, to be confronted with all of the things that John the Baptist said in his ministry, the call of the gospel is to come to Christ, trust in him, leave all of those things behind, and then watch how Out of saving faith, the Lord brings your heart more and more and more to this state of total self-commitment, living before the face of God and living for him always. See the wickedness of unbelief. And then finally, we see the danger 
of unbelief, the danger of unbelief. Not only do you see the wickedness of the tenants, but you see uh, the absurdity of their actions. Did they think that they would actually get away with not only abusing all of the servants of the master, but then killing the son? Did they think that they would get away with it? Obviously, this parable doesn't, it's not meant to show us the sovereignty of God or the, the omniscience of God, that God is all-knowing. Of course, we know that he is. And ultimately, you see the absurdity of those who would run from God and think that they never will have to face their God. But of course, we know that all will face the Lord. So the actions of the tenants here are not only wicked, but absurd. And we see the danger of unbelief. The people hear this parable from Jesus, and they understand it. It's simple enough to understand. You see who's representing Israel, who's representing the leaders, and the prophets. They say, may this never be. What do they mean by that? Uh, they, to them, they cannot believe that the leadership of Israel would miss the Messiah. That the Messiah would walk among them, and they would miss him. That they would not say, this is the one who was promised from long ago. Jesus says, God's word tells us as much. And so he quotes Psalm 118. He says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone the builders rejected. In other words, the builders, who are they? The ones who are called to build the household of God, the leadership of Israel. He is the one who is the cornerstone, who who is, in our translation, the capstone, the one on whom all things in the household of God rest. It's interesting that this is the same psalm that is quoted by the people as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Psalm 118. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And that highlights this tension in the Old Testament. The one who comes as the glorious Messiah, the glorious chosen one of God. He will die a death of shame. But through the shame, glory will come. And the call upon us is to believe. To do exactly that which the leadership of Israel was unwilling to do. To be confronted with the truth. To give our allegiance to Christ. And to believe in him. See, the danger of unbelief is that this Lord is coming again. He is coming again. And he is coming to judge the world in righteousness. As of now... He is a stone of stumbling. There's that image of stumbling on him now, but then that rock will come from above and crush all of those. He is a stone of stumbling now, but all who stumble on him now, who do not submit to his gospel and submit to him, uh, they are broken to pieces. But then there will come a time when this one who is now ruling and reigning from heaven, when he will come again, in righteousness to judge the world. And the call upon everyone is to believe, to believe in this one who is coming again. We read in, in various places in the Old Testament that, or in the New Testament, sorry, that quote this very verse. For instance, 1 Peter chapter 2. It stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, 
as they were destined to do. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Romans 10 also quotes this or speaks of this same idea. It says, For the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Saving faith allows us to go through this world just like our Lord did. You think of this scene unfolding before Jesus. You think of the road that he had to walk down to go to the cross to die this shameful death. Saving faith allows us to go through this world like our Savior, perhaps bearing shame for his name, because we know ultimately that those who believe, those who have faith in Christ, will not be put to shame. God doesn't need us to, for instance, bear the sword to defend the honor of Christ. You saw this uh, this past week. There's this, uh, this woman in Pakistan who was convicted uh, of blaspheming the Muslim God, and she was on death row, and uh, the Supreme Court of Pakistan reversed the decision, and when they reversed the decision, there was rioting in the streets, right? People went out to defend the honor of the Muslim God. This woman deserves to die. She must die. And even as of yesterday, I believe, they weren't able to, to they hadn't yet released her because it was not safe for her. Her, uh, her lawyer had to escape the country and flee. As we read in Romans chapter 12, that's not what we are called to do. History, uh, history continues to move on so that God may save more, so that more may come to faith in Christ. And so we know that though our Savior was shamed at the cross, he was risen and he now reigns in glory and he will come again in glory and he will judge the world in glory. Unbelief is foolish. Unbelief is wicked. Unbelief is dangerous. The truth of who Christ is confronts us, calls us to believe. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your son was sent as the cornerstone, as the one upon whom all of our salvation is founded. We thank you that as the gospel is preached and proclaimed, uh, you are enlivening dead hearts and causing them to to live and to, to flow forth with saving faith. We thank you that uh, accounts like this from the gospel, uh, that they confront us with the truth of Jesus Christ and that no one has the convenience of avoiding the truth. So we ask that your word uh, would go down deep into our hearts and that it would change and transform us. We pray that our commitment to you would grow out of saving faith that we would build upon the foundation of Christ. And that we do that for your honor and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.